How we doing, Harlem Region Church of Christ? Uh, we got a little technical difficulty here, but um, the brothers are on it. Because it's obvious Satan doesn't want us to talk about what we need to talk about tonight. But it's good to see everyone together. Um, this past Sunday, we, uh, we started to uh, encourage our friends and our visitors to do a little soul searching. And I do hope that uh, you, you take to heart these, uh, these lessons as they're not just a good idea or a good topic to talk about. As we really do expect um, everyone to respond to the scriptures personally and eventually corporately as a family. And so uh, tonight I was hoping to expound a little bit on Sunday's message because, you know, Sunday we really try to gear the messages to our friends and our visitors. And it's during midweek that we can really get a little deeper. We can have more of a family type talk. Amen? And so there are things that I can say to you that I can't say to our visitors on Sunday. And I think there's some things that's, you know, it's just, that's deliberate because, you know, as, as the scriptures tell us, those without the spirit are spiritually discerned. They don't really know. They, they're not able to grasp spiritual principles as those with the Holy Spirit. So there'll be things that we talk about that people may not get, that you get because of the simple fact we have the gift of God's Holy Spirit in us that helps us to understand other spiritual principles. With that being said, we also have the ability through God's Holy Spirit to make the changes that we need to make in our lives. To also encourage one another, not on a superficial level, but we can even have our souls encouraged. Amen? So, as the brothers continue to work on this, I wanted to uh, just open up with Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. You guys remember this passage. And in verse 25 through 27. You guys brought your Bibles, right? Alright, amen. Turn it on, turn it. Whatever you got to do. Luke 14, verse 25. Now, for those of us who are disciples, those of us who study the Bible and who study the Bible with people. Amen. There we go. Uh, we, we all know that before we made the decision to make Jesus Lord of our lives, what is one thing that Jesus expected us to do before we made that decision? By a show of hands. Willie. Repent. Repent? All right. That's a, that's a no, that's an expectation, right? Count the cost. What does that mean? What does it mean to count the cost in reference to your decision to making Jesus Lord of your life? Kev, you have your hand up. Mm. And, and, and if you, do get into it, make sure that you guys understand what he said? You make a decision before you get, you get into it. You you think about what you're getting yourself into, right? Who else? What else? What else does it mean to you? What, counting the cost. 
Why does Jesus expect us to count the cost? Make our wrongs right. Amen. Now, you know what's interesting, at least one more. Mm-hmm. Right. You make the Bible your standard of all areas of your life. Now, let me ask you this question. How many times throughout your walk with God do you count the cost? Every day, right? You know, I think for some of us, we thought that the only time we needed to count the cost was before we made Jesus Lord of our lives. You know, when you look at that passage, Jesus is not talking about a one-time thing. When Jesus talks about counting the cost, Jesus is not just talking about a one-time decision that we're going to have to make. There will be different stages in your life, different circumstances throughout your life where you're going to have to really think about can I do this with all my being can I do this with all my soul you know for me I had to count the cost to become a Christian I had to count the cost after year one to remain a Christian Then there came opportunities of leadership and serving. I had to count the cost on that. I had a career that was paying me well with benefits, and I was asked to give that career up to take an internship with the church with no benefits, making very little money. I was making $1,200 a year to become an intern. My mother thought I was crazy. I had to count the cost. There's no guarantee that I was going to be hired full-time, but I gave up a job that I waited three years to get to take the chance at the ministry. Counted the cost. I met a young lady named Zalika Warren. Well, at the time, Zalika Proctor, but you know, I had vision that one day she would become Zalika Warren. Before I asked this young lady to be my girlfriend, I had to count the cost. Does she share the same vision and passion I have for God and his kingdom? I want to be in the ministry. Does she want to be in the ministry? That's a cost to count. Is she going to help my walk with God? Or is she going to be a stumbling block in my walk with God? Am I going to have to focus more on her than I do Jesus? That's a cost I had to count. Thank God that when I did decide, I got a lot of advice, a lot of input, and the rest is history. Then I had to count the cost before I asked this young lady to be my wife. Being my girlfriend was one thing. But now... I had to count the cost if I was ready to leave my undivided devotion to Jesus and willingly take on another relationship that the Bible says 
would surely take my undivided devotion away from God and now split that with another human being. I had to count the cost. I had to count the cost. I love being able to be used by God in my single life. I love to be able, the thought of going anywhere and do anything and, and give up everything for God. I love that idea. But now, there's this young lady who captured my heart and I'm thinking, man, can she run with me? Or am I going to have to slow down and sacrifice my vision for God because we want to start a family one day? Had to count the cost. And then one of the hardest times in my life, in my walk with God, was deciding to take a step down from the ministry. I had to count the cost. Am I doing this because I believe it's the right thing to do for me, my family, and for God and his church? Or am I doing it because everybody else is doing it? And because I just don't want to do it anymore. Get to count the cost. Before we had children, we had to literally count the cost. Can we afford to have kids? Milk is not cheap. And you know, I'll be honest, that first year we had my daughter, we were on wick. I think that was just what they gave new mothers. They didn't count the husband. All the food that they gave us for Zalika and the baby. I'm like, I like to eat too. But that whole first year, to the glory of God, we didn't have to buy milk. And because of her parents and my mom, we didn't have to buy pampers. We barely had to buy clothes. I mean, I thank God for the church and people whose kids outgrew their clothes. Man, we had a whole lot of hand-me-downs. And we hand me down those hand me downs when our daughter grew out of it. But we had to count the call. You guys get the picture, right? When I took a job that said, James, we need you to work on Wednesdays and Sundays, I had to count the cost. God, I know what your expectations are, but right now I'm the only one working. What do I do? Got to count the cost. You see, I think sometimes disciples come into this walk and this relationship oblivious to the unforeseen circumstances that will arise in your life. And we forget that we have to continue to count the cost. In Luke chapter 14, In verse 25, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, yes, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I mean, I remember reading this. Do you remember reading this for the first time? And someone said, you got to hate your mother, your father, your whole family. And I think Jesus kind of helped calm that by saying, and you know what, you throw yourself in there too. Because I got to hate my mama, I got to hate my father. I mean, what does this mean? What does it mean? What is Jesus expecting of us right here? He 
he's expecting something, he's communicating the level of commitment that he expects of us. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can never stop counting the cost. Another way, or another way of looking at that is do some soul searching. You see, because what God says in Mark 12, says you got to love me with all your heart. That's another way of saying hate everybody. Hate, prioritize this relationship. In other words, you're going to have to love me with everything you got. In other words, you're not going to be able to be my disciple. You're not going to be able to do this. You're not, you know, you can't be, I, I look at this, I'm thinking, well, okay, how can I modernize this for me? Well, James, if you're not going to love Zalika with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, don't even get married because you're not going to be able to do it. If you're not going to love these kids unconditionally, don't even have kids. If yourself is always going to be the priority, you can't see beyond yourself, you're not going to sacrifice for their happiness, for their health, don't even think about it. You're not going to be able to do it. That, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. If you're not willing to die to yourself, you're not going to be able to do this. You're not. And so, we're called to do some soul searching. And, and I do want to remind us, I'm not even going to talk about anything brand new, but I do want to remind us of some things that we need to think about if we want to be a part of God's kingdom. I'm not even talking about the Harlem region or the New York City church. I'm talking about God's holy kingdom. Amen? eight questions I want us to ask ourselves as we do some soul searching and look I want to really encourage you. I went through these myself and I asked myself these very questions so I'm not asking you to ask yourself anything I wouldn't ask myself or expect of myself but I really want us to think deeply about these questions to answer them honestly and write down what your plan is for each of these questions to making them very clear in your life. Now here's the thing. Every single one of us had to count the cost, but not all of us had to count the same cost. Every, well I'll, I'll say this. We have different degrees of cost. For some of us, you know, especially for those of you who are married to non-believers, there was a different cost you had to count than I did. And so, not everyone is going to have the same type of cost to count, but the expectation is still the same. The level of commitment is still the same. Now you may think, well, there's family members, I don't have a great relationship with my brothers anyway, so that's a no-brainer. I don't have a problem with hating them. But here's the thing, if you want them to become a Christian, then you got to change how you look at those relationships. And if Jesus is Lord, then those relationships will improve because we're loving people with all our hearts. So here's the first question I want you to ask yourself. 
Number one, we're going to do something. I just want you to understand that this is a biblical theme. I'm not just making this stuff up. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 5. You know, Paul... Paul, when he went to Corinth, Paul had to go through a series of tests to prove that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because Paul didn't become an apostle by the traditional means or or the typical means that Jesus appointed his twelve. He didn't walk with Jesus. And so the people in Corinth were like, well, how do we even know you're a real apostle? You're coming here telling us how to live. How do we know? So Paul actually had to go through... Uh, an examination and they were holding Paul to to these randomized tests and Paul had to prove his authority to come in and lead that church and so once Paul did it Paul said now it's your turn now it's your turn and in verse 5 of chapter 12 it says I'm sorry 13 chapter 13 verse 5 it says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless of course you fail the test so right here we see and you know Peter in one way in his letter echoes he tells us to test the spirits and so we're not to take any of this lightly Especially when souls are involved. And so I do want to encourage us, if you need a biblical conviction to do what we're about to do, there it is right there. Examine yourself. Now here's the thing, I also understood, and I understand that sometimes we can be our own worst critic. So you need to ask yourself these questions, and then I would encourage you to ask one or two other people who know you, who are in your life, what do you think, how do you think I'm doing in these areas? And let's help each other out. Amen. Let's be honest with each other. Let's not just give these, ah, you're, you're awesome. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're great. Now let's be honest. If someone's asking you, it's because they really want to know. Amen. So the first question is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Well, James, I wouldn't be here if Jesus wasn't Lord of my life. I beg to differ. You know, fear is a big motivation for some people. Some people come to church because they're afraid of what other people might say or think of them. That's not a good motivation to come to church. That's not a good motivation for doing anything. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Remember we talked about understanding the why behind everything we do? That's what helps us to keep going. And so my question to you is, Is Jesus Lord of your life? And if so, why? You need to know that. You need to be able to articulate, this is why Jesus is Lord of my life. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Luke chapter 9, it's another familiar passage. Luke 9, verse 23. The Bible says, then he said to them all, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life for me will save it. You know, Jesus has got to be Lord of our lives. What does that look like practically for a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
Gladys? Having the Bible as your standard, living by it. Okay. Anybody else? Asking yourself daily. You know, I love that. You guys remember that whole WWJD thing? That whole fad that went on? I love that. Because it really put me in the frame of mind. I don't usually, you know, jump on bumper stickers and stuff, but I really started to ask myself, you know, what would Jesus say to this person right here? How would Jesus react in this situation? And I think that's a really good attitude for us to have. What would Jesus do? Gwen, you had Jane up? Praying and getting advice before going into a situation. Now, let me ask you guys an honest question. And you, we, we're a family, right? For the most part, everybody here, we like each other? All right. How practical, how practical is it to get advice about everything? It's not easy, right? It's not tough. Sometimes people don't answer the phone or text you back, right? But is it a good habit to, to form? Absolutely. Absolutely. So just because something doesn't seem practical to us doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. There are times where, you know, you may be in the store and you're like, man, should I get this? Should I get that? And you, you're texting pictures to people. You know, sometimes, you know, I was looking at a blazer and I text my wife and, and she didn't get back to me. And, and I'm thinking, all right. And I left the store. She got back to me when I was in the car already gone. And I'm thinking, see, I tried to get advice. But, you know, and it's, things like that happen. You can't, it's not her fault that she didn't get my text or she, she had something that she could do. Sometimes that's the case. But what I'm talking about here and what the scriptures are talking about is life-changing decisions. We're not talking about getting advice on a color pair of shoes. If somebody doesn't get back to you, I mean, come on, that doesn't, that doesn't have any sort of spiritual merit at all. But when you're talking about Adding something to your life or making a life-altering decision, the wise thing would be get advice. Why? Because Jesus is Lord and you want to make sure that Jesus is going to still be Lord after you make that decision. And so Jesus has got to be Lord. Sometimes the only way for us to really know if he still is, is for us to keep getting input into our lives. Because look, let's be honest. Things change, and sometimes we, you know, some of us have different convictions than we had when we first made Jesus Lord. We're at different places spiritually. And therefore, we have to continually, continually ask input into our lives if we are to make Jesus Lord. Now, here's another thing. You still got to make Jesus Lord even if there's nobody around you. Even if no one gives you advice. Jesus still has to be Lord of your life. This is a personal commitment, a personal decision. That if I don't have a discipling partner, if I'm nowhere near a church and I'm on vacation and and all I got is my Bible and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is still going to be Lord. That even if there's not a boss hovering over me telling me what to do, when to come back from my break, when to do this, when to do that, I'm still going to make Jesus Lord. 
When I'm filing my taxes, I'm not going to claim something that I don't have or I'm going to not try to get more money than I'm supposed to. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. We still have to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? And if you don't know, that's a great Bible study right there. It's our responsibility to figure out. The second question is, are you living by, do you still live by the Holy, Holy Scriptures? In 2 Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scriptures God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We, we use this, this, this passage when we are sharing the Bible with our friends, when we're helping someone convert to Christ. We, we ask them, you know, are you willing to make the Bible your standard? Remember that? Remember that question? And my question is, is it still your standard? Can someone still show you scriptures to help you out of a situation? Because the Bible right here says that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If I can't use the Bible to do those things with your life, then maybe it's not your standard. The Bible says that it equips us for every good work. So if we're not using the Bible, then how equipped are we? Do you believe that the Bible truly equips you? And do you approach your quiet times as you're being equipped? As you're training yourself in righteousness? You know, when I was, before I became a disciple, the scriptures, I, I turned to the Bible only for encouragement. Never to challenge my lifestyle. And that's just how I was brought up. Psalm 27, Psalm 30, Psalm 25, Psalm 23. We turn to all the encouraging scriptures. But when we sat down and somebody pulled out Galatians 5, you were like... You thought somebody hit you with a shotgun. Like, I have never been rebuked by the word of God before. You thought the Bible was only for encouraging and leading you to calm waters and green pastures. And then you look at Galatians 5 and it's like, what? Or Revelation 21.8, all liars? Going to hell with murderers? The Bible's got to be our standard. You know, I, I think the Bible needs to supersede anybody else's experience in your life. The Bible needs to be the thing that trains you. And if somebody is in your life and they're helping you to mature in the Lord and they're not using the Bible, you got to start asking more questions. By the way, who trained you how to train people? Because I notice that when we get together, you don't use the Bible. We get with the powers of our disciple of time, guess what? The Bible is still open. And we still take notes. I got copious pages of notes from my disciple of times. Because I want to grow. 
I'm being trained in righteousness. We get with the Maori and, and the Naked De La Cruz, you know what? There's coffee, there's herbal tea, and there's the Bible. We've been good friends for years. But the Bible is still open in our discipling times. I get with, the, with the, Emmanuel Cespedes. You know what we talk about? We talk about his life. We talk about the good. We talk about the bad. But we also talk about the Bible. Because I'm training him in righteousness. I want the word of God to speak. I want his convictions to not come from James Warren's experience. But for it to come from the mouth of God. Number three, ask yourself this question. Do you submit to the biblical authority of leadership? I can answer that for some of y'all. So got some scriptures on this. You know, there was a time where I used to hesitate to talk about two things. Money and leadership. It always made me feel a little awkward to ask the church to sacrifice financially, but then also to submit to my leadership. But you know what? That is a command from God. And I'm not going to shy away from that because I have to, I'm held accountable by God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church is precious. And God has given the leadership of the church the Herculean task of shepherding the flock. Now, Sometimes when the shepherd is leading the sheep to green pastures, to calm waters, to shade, to protection, not all the sheep will follow. That's not fun for the shepherd. Because now he's got to leave the other sheep behind in open country to go look for those wayward sheep. Risking bear attacks, wolf attacks, lion attacks. All sorts of dangers to go after these wayward sheep who forget that they're part of a flock and that they're under authority. Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 13. Ephesians 4. You know, going back, let me just back up here for a second. You know, there's a reason why Paul commanded the Ephesian elders to shepherd God's flock the way he did. In verse 29 it says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. You know, it's interesting that Paul, it's interesting that Paul gives this command to the Ephesian elders. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, he also gives a similar command to the, the church in Corinthians who had to deal with some disciplinary issues. For the reason that he just spelled out right here. There were people in the church doing harm from within the church. And Paul said that for those people who are unrepentant, who are swindlers, who are sexually immoral and call themselves Christians, he said, put them out of, your, out of your fellowship. Why are you keeping them in the fellowship to do more harm than good? 
But here's the, here's the problem. There were too many sentimental people in the church. And so when Paul said, have nothing to do with them, that was a part of their plan for repentance. You see, when the church authority is asking for your support in helping to bring someone to repentance, don't take it upon yourself to step out of, out of their command to bring about, you may be doing more harm than good. I believe that there are a lot more brothers and sisters that would have returned to our fellowship if everybody was unified on church discipline. But because some of us are sentimental and think, well, the leaders are wrong and they don't know you like I do. And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is to have them broken to a point of return. That's part of God's plan. So when you step out of the authority that's given, you're prolonging the process. You're making people think that they're okay and it's just the leaders that are, are messed up and that the leaders are picking you out and that they're being hard. That's not the point. The point is to help them to come. We do it because we love them. That's why you discipline your children. You don't want to spank them. You don't want to punish them. But you do it because you're trying to form character. You're trying to build something. You're trying to protect them. It doesn't feel good. But it has to happen. And it's God's plan. So who are you? Who are you to say that God's plan doesn't work? You know, every time I had to exercise church discipline, it never felt good. There were times I cried because I actually had to ask some of my friends to leave the church. You don't think I pray for them? I reached out to a brother that I had to ask to leave just a few weeks ago because I want him to come back. But I know that this is God's plan and by God, I'm going to do it. And as painful as it is. Just as painful as it is to punish my children and to see tears pour from their eyes, I'm going to do it because God commands me to do it. But we got to be on the same page. We got to be on the same page. It's 8 o'clock. For all the parents that need to go downstairs, please do so at this time. All the parents. <laughs> for the meeting. I'm sorry, 119, room 119. You guys know who that is, right? Teen parents, parents of 8th graders. Another scripture is uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 7. I, I skipped over Ephesians 4, but real quick. Ephesians 4 says, it was he, underline he, doesn't mean me, didn't say it was James. It says, it was he who gave some to be apostles. Who's he? It's God, right? Some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Pastors, another word for elders. To what? Prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness. I don't know when that is. Do you? Do you know when we'll all reach maturity and fullness in Christ? That's a never-ending job. That's a never-ending job. Until Jesus comes back, we're going to we're gonna continue to have to fight 
to be unified. And God designed the leadership structure to help that happen. It was God who who designed that. Hebrews 13 verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. Give account to who? To God. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, simply put, let us do our job. Just let us do our job. You know, there's an incredible amount of pressure that comes naturally with leadership. But each disciple is commanded by God to follow the direction of the elders and of the leadership of the church as long as our decisions and judgment do not conflict the Bible. Can I say that again? As long as our decisions and judgment do not conflict the Bible. If we're asking you to do something that's outside of the Lord's will, don't do it. Now here's the thing, I understand that some of us are sensitive to the practices of the past. But I want to ask you, I want to encourage you to ask yourself this question. Am I not doing this because it was wrong or because it was something right that was practiced wrong? Ask yourself that question. Because I think that if we ask you to do something that was just flat out wrong, then that's on us. But if we ask you to do something that was right, and maybe it was practiced wrong, then we got to stop and say, okay, well, where did it go wrong? But it wasn't wrong. It, I mean, it was right. It was just practiced wrong. I was, look, I'll be the first to say that not everybody had a great discipling relationship. But is discipling wrong? I'm still waiting for someone to show me some scriptures on why discipling is wrong and should not be implemented in the church. You know, we got to get to a point, if the Bible is our standard and Jesus is Lord, like we said, not only do you have to be able to show from scripture why you do what you do, but you also have to show why you don't do what you do from the scriptures. This is why I don't have a discipling partner, bro. Show me. Let me see where you're getting your convictions from. Is it possible that something we initially intended to be right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that everything was done wrong. It doesn't. And you know, God does give the leadership in the scriptures the authority to practice the principles of the Bible according to their time. The Bible was meant to be timeless. This is why there's not a lot of specifics on things in the Bible. Because God didn't want it to get trapped 2,000 years ago. So we have the flexibility to do Bible talk, prayer group, soul group, midweek, Sunday service, Saturday service. Whatever we want to do because we love God and we got the freedom in Christ to do so. God gives us the flexibility to do it. But what makes it work? Because we're all together. You're under authority. I'm under authority. I can't just do what I want. Just because I'm the region leader of Harlem. I answer to the elders. I answer to Sam. I answer to my wife. Number four. 
Y'all ain't hear that one. She helps me. She helps you keep, keep, uh, stay grounded. Ask yourself this question. Are you committed to the body of Christ? James, I'm here tonight, so that means I'm committed. You know, I thank God for the time that the four years my wife and I were out of the ministry. Because there were times where, you know, as, as an evangelist, you kind of forget some things sometimes. You forget what it was like to be in a secular world. And for that time that I was out, and I show up to work every day, and I got these cursing co-workers, and they're showing, you know, trying to show me stuff on the internet, and, and they're going after women, and I'm, you know, women are talking all crazy and stuff, and I'm thinking, man, what is going on here? Like culture shock. And then I was reminded, yeah, but James, your people go through this every day. Every day. You, you're just coming back into this. They never stopped. And I remember how humbling that was for me. To go back into the workforce, to be, the most humbling thing was being around worldly people every day. And having to deal and stay, you know, fight off all the temptation that was around me and still be evangelistic and then, you know, and, and then trying to be a good enough employee so I can get Wednesdays off. I'm like, man, I appreciate our brothers and sisters. But I'll tell you one thing, there was still no excuse. I still was expected to show up. Yeah, I remember going to work and having to talk to my, my, my co-workers about switching days off so that I could be to church on Wednesday. And there were times where I wouldn't get the Bible talk until after work, so I, I showed up just in time for fellowship. And then on Sundays, they were like, James, we can only afford to give you one Sunday off because we need you guys to come in. We need everybody to work on Sunday. And I'm like, yeah, but I got all this responsibility at church. And you know, they're like, man, I go to church too. <laughs> what are you going to say then when the boss doesn't have conviction about church. He's like, well, look, I'm here and I go to church, so you got to come too. And I'm thinking, man, you know, this is crazy. But here's the thing. I still expected God to work. I still expected God to work. I, I mean, I remember talking to my discipling partner at the time, and I said, bro, I'm struggling, man. I, I want to come. I'm thinking about quitting my job. He said, well, you can't do that. Because then you'll be disobeying other scripture. How else are you going to provide for your family? You still got to... So you got to figure this... And then he just said something really simple. You don't think God can change your schedule? He didn't say your boss. He said God. Pointing right back to the source of my faith. You don't think God can change your schedule? And, you know, and my question to you is the same thing. You don't think God can change your schedule? I think too many of us have caved, caved under the pressure of our, of our jobs. And the very God that gave you the job in the first place, no, you don't think when God gave you the job, he knew you had midweek on Wednesday? He knew you had Bible talk or family group? You don't think God knew you need to be at church on Sunday? That you need to get discipled and you need to be in Bible study? Why do you think God gave you that job? If not to mature your faith. And deepen your conviction. You know, when I look at all that, I, I just think that's the only reason God, because I think God knows what I needed. 
But God also matured my faith during. And it, I remember, I'll never forget the day, the day my boss walked in and said, Hey guys, we're shutting down the department on Sundays. I was like... <laughs> and then I felt stupid, like, James, you were worrying for nothing. God shut down the whole department. And I'm thinking, come on, man, you can't tell me. That God can't change our schedule. God can't make it so that you can fulfill your commitment to Him. I refuse to believe it. It's not that I forgot where I came from. It's just that my faith is at such a different place now that when somebody tells me, bro, I can't come from work, I'm thinking, you believe that God can change your schedule. Well, James, you know, I went after, I did this, I did that. It's like, well, do you think that you need to stay at that job? Maybe God has a different job for you. He's waiting for you to step out on faith and trust Him. we got to take it back to God. Now here's the thing. The kingdom is not stiff. There are things that we do. We, we, we have, we have uh, our schedule is all over the place. Summertime comes, kids are out of school, we got Bible talks, we got... Everything that we're trying to do to keep everybody safe, keep everybody spiritual, help everybody to mature, help everyone to grow, things will never stay stagnant in the kingdom of God. We're always going to be moving. And so our hearts need to be flexible. Now here's the thing. I understand that not everybody's going to have a, a schedule that fits the kingdom schedule. You don't have to have a kingdom schedule to have a kingdom heart. Yo, Matthew 6, 23, 33, seek first his kingdom and all his righteousness. That's the heart that God is trying to develop in us. So even if you don't have a kingdom schedule, at least you have a kingdom heart. Bro, what was the lesson on, on Wednesday? What was the sermon? I mean, didn't, when Jesus was in the home teaching, he had, these guys carry their friends to Jesus. Sometimes you need to do that in the body. Carry people. Carry a message over. Carry out when Mr. George was around. It was so encouraging to hear that people were having church over his own because he couldn't come out anymore. But no one would have ever questioned Mr. George's heart. No one would have ever questioned Mr. George's commitment. Because he had a kingdom heart. He didn't have a kingdom schedule. But he had a kingdom heart. You know, what we do in the summer may be different than what we do during the school year. And it's not so much as, and I look, I learned that you can't just, just let everything slide. And I look, I know my, my heart, if you give me the, the opportunity to sin, it's just going to come easy. Right? And so this is why we got to really ask ourselves these questions. Like, do I really have to work overtime or do I just want to work overtime you don't have to do anything outside of your normal commitment even on your jobs there are certain policies and procedures they can't force you to do anything even down to your religious beliefs but you got to have the faith to say I need to be a church and even if that means not earning the extra few bucks Amen. Because here's the thing, guys. We need to be committed to the body because I don't know about you, but like 
like our brother Wale prayed, you just need Jesus. <laughs> and we need each other. We need to, we need to, I mean, look, we just need Jesus. We need encouragement. We need encouragement, especially if you're surrounded by ungodly people all day. You know, I often think about, man, what excuses would Jesus accept for not coming to the meetings of the body? And I'm thinking, there's not a whole lot. You look at Luke 9, verses 57 to 62, and Jesus is calling people to follow him. They were giving all sorts of, oh, I just got married. Jesus said, look, son of man has no place to lay his head. Well, look, Lord, let me go first bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, Jesus said some things that if I said to you, you'd be like, James lost his mind. Is James crazy? Let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, Jesus just said some things. I still marvel at the fact that he sat in church and watched the widow put in everything he had and he didn't stop her. Instead, he used her as an example. You see what she did? She gave all she had. Everybody else was coming out of the, giving out of the abundance. She gave out of faith. Sometimes God has us where he has us to use us as an example for everybody else. Our sister Margaret Martinez, she's like, she sent the message. She's like, look, you tell whoever sits in my seat on Sunday, don't get comfortable because I'm coming back. She doesn't have a kingdom schedule, but she got a kingdom heart. Number five, do you participate in one another relationships? Let's read a little bit here. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verses 3 through 21. This passage is filled with relationship verses. Romans 12 verses 3 through 21. This is for, the, by the, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You know, in other words, don't think that you can go at it alone. Don't, don't think that you're, you're so strong that you can't trip. Don't think that you're so strong that you can't slip. Just as each, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. According to the grace given us, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do so cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in what? Brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. That brother wants to get together and you're tired, you're sleepy, you want to take a nap. You know what? I'm going to honor him above myself. I'm going to help him out. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's grace, God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. He didn't say that that's the goal. He just said that as you're doing this, all right, I'm going I'm to treat him nice and make him feel it. No, that's not the goal, all right? I just wanted to make sure I point that out right there. In verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, we love each other. And are consistently involved in one another relationship. We're called to love each other as Jesus loved us. That's the standard of our relationships. But we have to be in one another's lives in order to put that into practice. You can't put this into practice by yourself. You can't. You have to be involved in one another relationships in order to put these these scriptures. In fact, most of the commands in the Bible involves other people in order for you to put it into practice you can't put first corinthians 13 in love that whole passage you can't put that into practice with yourself you can't put matthew 28 18 through 20 into practice with yourself you're gonna preach to yourself baptize yourself teach yourself to obey everything you can't do that most of the scriptures that we're called to put into practice involves other relationships some with the world most with each other you know we believe in practicing discipleship and we've called it all sorts of stuff mentoring discipling influencing getting together hanging out whatever you keep it simple you know what I'm just gonna love somebody this is my brothers my sister love one another you know, we believe in practicing the one another's in this church. And you need to ask yourself, are you committed to the growth of the body? I'm not just talking about showing up here. Are you committed to helping your brothers and sisters grow and becoming like Jesus? You know, one of the things I love to do with my any free time that I get is go fishing. And I was just grateful the last, you know, a couple weeks ago, I got to go fishing with my brother Armando and some brothers from Brooklyn. And, and, you know, what I love about that is that, man, we just get to encourage each other. You know, I get to spend some time. We get to talk on the way there and while we're fishing and things like that. And it really helps to build up the body. It helps to build up the body. Just yesterday, I went with a brother out in New Jersey, and, you know, his dad just recently became a disciple, and his dad loves to go fishing. I caught nothing. I, in fact, I caught a tree. That was it. I, my thing got caught up in the tree. That was the only thing I caught all day. But that was time well spent because I got to sit with his dad, who was a young Christian in the faith, and encourage his faith. 
and we sat there and we talked and we caught no fish together. But that was not a waste of time. Because we're building each other up in Christ. Are you committed to the growth of the body? Who are you actively helping? Who are you actively helping? Who can say that they're helping you or you're helping them? You know, guys, there's, the church is no place for lone rangers. You're not going to do well spiritually being by yourself. You can only get you but so far. And so if there's not someone in your life helping you to mature in Christ, holding you accountable to the scriptures, you're going to have a very, very immature spiritual life with God. Because you need somebody in your life helping you to mature in Christ. That is a, that's God's plan. It's God's plan. And he wants all of his children to grow. Number six, real quickly, are you a part of a prayer group? On paper, everybody's a part of a prayer group on paper. I know because I put it on there. And we went through the membership list and we put everybody's name in a prayer group. But are you actively in a prayer group? Now in the ideal situation, in the perfect church, I would never have to ask that question. But that's not where we're at. So my question is, are you in a prayer group? And if not, why not? Oh, bro, my friends aren't in that that group. I really wanted to be with the one over there. But since nobody asked my permission, I'm not going anywhere. Now, here's the thing. Y'all laugh. But y'all don't have to be the ones having these talks. Look, here's the thing. We want everybody to be honest, but we also want everybody to be unified. There's a reason why we do these things. We deliberately decided to take a good chunk of the year to focus on the spiritual well-being of Harlem. The point being, if we're not loving God with all of our being, why would God want to add to something like that? So instead of just spinning our wheels and and going around saying, well, why aren't we growing? Why aren't we doing this? Why are we doing that? Wait, let's stop for a second. Let's hit the reset button and let's figure this thing out. Let's do a little soul search. Let's see what's going on because where would you want your friends to be? Where would you want your children to grow up? I want to be a part of a healthy church. I want to continue to boast about my church and say, hey, everybody's committed. But if everybody's not, then I'm just proving myself to be a liar. And you know the sad part about it? Is the people who need to hear it aren't here to hear it. They're not here to hear it. Like I said before, I know things come up. And I understand life can throw us curveballs that we're not prepared for. God will help us out. But there are some of us who are in habits. It's a habit. We don't show up to things. We don't come to things. And we don't talk to people about it. Nobody knows what's going on in our lives until God has to expose it. And now we got to sit down and talk about it. And God is like, look, I set you up to win here. 
All we're asking people to do is come together twice a month to pray. To pray, Jelani. To pray. Not to ask anybody to do an exegesis on the book of Acts or to learn Greek. To pray. And I even gave you the theme and the scripture. All you got to do is turn on your phone, print it out, whatever you do to read it, it's already there. But James, you don't understand my situation. I got a lot going on. Who doesn't got a lot going on? But you know, it's doing exactly what we had hoped God would do. Show us where our hearts are at. See, now here's the good news about this. Is that when God exposes something, God doesn't expose a vein and just leave it exposed. God is a healing God. God comes in. He, he assesses the situation, he comes up with the plan, and because we bear God's name, God goes in and he makes it work. He heals. God does the healing. And so, I don't want to put everybody in a box, because there are some people who have very legitimate reasons for not being able to make certain things. What I'm talking about is making ourselves aware of those who are habitually missing things because that can be a telltale sign that there's something serious going on. And because we are all, like the scripture says in Romans, because we're all connected to one another, we should be concerned about that. So if I know there's a brother or sister struggling, and I know that they're not getting help, and there's nobody in their life, that's just a recipe for disaster right there. I'm not going to keep that to myself. No, no longer as, as I would if somebody said, I'm going to hurt myself. When, you, when someone is spiritually distancing themselves from the, from the body, that's spiritual suicide right there. What else, is, what else did you expect to happen? I've never seen an example of someone in the scriptures distancing themselves from God's people and surviving. No one that we're called to imitate. Everyone we're called to imitate had a strong connection to the rest of the body. Paul, Peter, everyone. Even when John was isolated on the island of Patmos, he had connections with the brothers. Are you in a prayer group? This is not a good idea or a suggestion. This is something the church was devoted to in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Number seven, and we're wrapping this up. Do you sacrifice to meet the financial needs of the church? This is where it usually gets quiet. Because now we're talking about money. So I had to go get some scriptures to really help us out right here. You know, there's a bunch of scriptures you can, you can uh, jot down there. I just want to look at 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, real quick. 2 Corinthians 9, in verse uh, 6 through 8, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You know, a good test of, of, of commitment and, and, and devotion is how, how we spend our time, our money, and all the resources. And here, Paul reminds us that God loves a cheerful giver. But he also tells us that God, the condition of our hearts, that's really what he's talking about here, is the condition of our heart with our giving. He's saying that God doesn't want us to give outside of what we decided in our hearts to give. He doesn't want us to give reluctantly. He doesn't want us to be coerced or feel uh, or under compulsion. He doesn't want you to feel pressured to give. And I understand, you know, I remember, you know, man, there was a time during that, you know, we were, we were, we were on a, 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 a fixed income, so to speak. You know, there was a time where I remember going to uh, this, this uh, bodega in Washington Heights and they had chicken legs on sale for 25 cents a pound. And this was back in 2003. And I used to go there after work and I would get like $10 worth of chicken legs. And I tell you, that's what the Warren family, we, we ate chicken, fried chicken, baked chicken. Zaliga made honey mustard chicken. I mean, we were eating chicken, stewed chicken. But here's the thing. As broke as we were, we always gave contribution. And you know where it came from? It didn't come from a sense of duty. It came from God, I thank you that I have a job. And that I could give you something. There were times where we were giving hundreds of dollars a week. And then there were times where I could only give $20 a week. But everything I put in that pot, I thank God that I had the ability to do it. And that I thank God that I got a check, that I was able to provide for my family, and I did not withhold. We gave special contribution. There were times we were able to give over a thousand. There was times we only gave under a hundred. But you know what? We gave. Because God has given so much to us. Even with our little one-income family, God was blessing us with things. God was blessed, so it's not how much you put in. As it is about the condition of your heart when you give it. When we're able to look beyond ourselves, when we're able to see beyond our needs, and when we're truly invested in God's purpose, God's mission, God will bless your life. God blesses our hearts. Now that shouldn't be the end all, that shouldn't be the reason we give, but that's God's blessing when you do give. Yeah, I remember we, we, we couldn't have, you know, we were, my daughter was born, we were bumming rides for midweek, because midweek was way over in Mount Vernon, and I'm like, yeah, how are we going to get out there? And we were just bum rides, part of my fellowship was asking for rides after church. And then God... Use Zaliga's dad who found this deal, this incredible, ridiculous deal for a car. He bought this car for $1,000 and gave it to us. And then we had a car. Didn't have to pay for it. He even was paying the insurance on the car for us. Until, until I got a, uh, my job gave me a raise and I was able to afford the insurance. It was humbling, 
But I thank God that he provided. Sometimes the blessings don't come in the way we want them to. I wanted to go out and be able to buy my own and do. But God said, no, I'm going to take care of you until you can do that. But I never stopped giving. Never stopped giving. And God continued to take care of us even till this day. God provides for us. You know, Mrs. Contribution is coming up. Some of us are excited about it. Some of us aren't excited about it. We had plans what we were going to do with that money. And then somebody got up and made a special contribution announcement. And then the Maori gets up and asks us, what's happening on June 11th? To get us all excited. And we're like, oh, special contribution. And some of us are fired up, we're excited, because for not for nothing, some of us know. You know, our brother Francisco Espinal used to be a part of the, uh, the uh, Dominican Republic Church. That church was the recipient of our special contribution for years. For years. So he knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of our generosity. You know, there's a few sisters, Charmin and then... Um, Avenia, they had an opportunity to go visit some of our churches in Africa. They got to see firsthand people who are on the receiving end of your generosity. Now, some people only give if they know exactly where the money's going to. Let me test your heart right here. When you go to the grocery store, do you ask the man... That you're paying, where's this money going to? When you go to Macy's, do you ask the cashier, yes, I will take my receipt in my hand, not in the bag. By the way, where are the proceeds of this money going to? When you go to Starbucks and you get your latte, your frappuccino, your culotta, with an extra squirt of syrup, and you ask, do you ask your barista, where do the proceeds of this delicious drink go to? So why all of a sudden do we need to know all the details about where our money goes when we give to God? Well, here's the thing. If that's what you need to know for your faith to be where it needs to be, amen. It's always available. It always has been. It always will be. But check your heart with that. Because if you don't expect that of the world, if you're not doing that with the world, then why would you do that with God's church? At least you know the money is going to help. So whether it stays, some of it stays here in New York to help train young men and women to go into the full-time ministry, glory be to God. If it goes to, we support the church in Haiti solely. You may never get to meet a disciple from Haiti. You may never get to meet your brothers and sisters in Africa. But we should still give. We should still give. And lastly, are you committed to seeking and saving the lost? You know, I think there was a time where we would all say yes. And I also understand that there's a time where some of us have always struggled with this area. You know, we were raised to not talk to strangers. Then we become a disciple, and that's what they expect us to do. Talk to strangers. And not only that, but invite them over to your house. <laughs> Open up your Bible with them and talk to them about Jesus. 
So that is countercultural, this command, because a part of our culture, we don't, we don't expect, we don't even teach our kids to talk to strangers. So the thought of talking to some, maybe you fear rejection, maybe you, maybe you just, it just makes you, the whole thought of talking to somebody about the Bible makes you uncomfortable. But that doesn't take away the need for people to hear the gospel. And every time we can deny ourselves and commit to seeking someone who's lost, that is an act of love that will last for eternity. Because that act of love, when you look at it as an act of love instead of an act of duty, that act of love can have an eternal impact on somebody's soul. Just as much when we deny people the opportunity to know Jesus, that's also having an indirect impact on people's soul. And I know the Holy Spirit convicts a lot of us to talk to people. I know for me, sometimes if there's somebody the Spirit prompts me to talk to, and they got their headphones on. I'm like, I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to interrupt them. You know? Or, man, they look kind of, that guy looks a little mean. I don't know if I want to talk to him. You know, I remember there was a young guy on the train. And I, I fought. I fought. We were on, I was on my way to the Javits Center. And I just fought in my heart to do what the Spirit said. The Spirit said, James, reach out to him. Invite him to church. And I said, all right, God, you know what? I'm going to do it. And he had his headphone on. He had his head back. He was like this. And I said, um, excuse me. I hate to disturb you, but, you know, I'm actually on my way to a church service. Would you be interested in going? He said, no. And he closed his eyes and he laid his head back. And then I said, all right, God, I did it. But then the spirit was like, yeah, but he doesn't know what he's saying no to. So here I am, like a crazy guy, having this conversation back and forth. And I'm like, man, you know, he doesn't know what he's saying no to. And I said, sir, I'm sorry, I hate, to, I hate to bother you again, but I don't think you really understand what you're saying. He said, leave me alone, I do not want to go to your church. And he put his thing on, put his head back, closed his eyes. And I felt that peace. Because, not because I got turned down and treated, you know, disrespectfully. It was because I actually listened to God. I did what the Holy Spirit asked me to do. I gave him a chance. Now, I would have felt entirely differently had I ignored those prompts, got up, got off the train. That would have haunted me for the rest of the day. Because I never know. I never would have known if he was open or not. Just like the young man who walked up to me 21 years ago didn't know if I was open or not. He simply asked me, do you want to study the Bible? I want to give people the same opportunity someone gave me. But it's not going to happen unless I'm committed to it. Some of us are doing great in this area. Some of us still need some encouragement. And I just want to encourage you guys. I'm going to leave this up here. Take a picture of it. Do whatever you got. But please, find some time to ask yourself these questions. Be honest with yourself. Pray about it. And ask God to give you the strength to be totally committed to Him 
And to be at a better place if you need to be spiritually. Amen? To God be the glory. Please go get your kids if you have your kids in children's class. Thank you.